Global Capital Podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Global Capital Podcast. I'm Ralph Sinclair and I'm the editor of Global Capital. And I'm John Hay, Corporate Finance and Sustainability Editor. And each week we'll be bringing you some of the most interesting stories from around the world's capital markets. Now, the main sort of story we'll be focusing on this week, well, if you thought Argentinian messy financial situations were the preserve of Spanish football clubs, then you'd be wrong. Um, John, what's been going on in Argentina, just briefly? Well, the country is once again struggling under its debt burden. It owes $45 billion to the IMF and $3 billion of that is due to be paid in March and it hasn't got the money. So there's a pretty tense negotiation going on and it's obviously very political uh, and controversial within the country. That's right. And of course, uh, Argentina is no no stranger to uh, debt restructurings, default and capital markets chaos. Um, we spoke to Ollie West, our Latin America correspondent, about that in depth and uh, that'll be coming up later. Um, but in the meantime, um, there's been plenty of else else going on in the capital markets this week, hasn't there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we had two important central bank meetings, both on Thursday afternoon. Um, the Bank of England's monetary policy um, gave its verdict and raised interest rates by a quarter of a percentage point. Um, for the second meeting running, it raised rates. That hasn't happened since 2004. But for, for most market participants, that was overshadowed by the European Central Bank, um, which also had a had a rates meeting. Um, yeah, that's um, that's right. It, uh, it's been under pressure to tighten its monetary policy to tackle inflation, which for years was well below its two percent target, but is now miles above it at five point one percent, and that shows no sign of falling. Um, the ECB's arsenal for tackling this is, of course, either to put up interest rates or to lower the amount of bond buying it does. And now it's important to say it did neither yesterday. Um, but what it did do was its president, Christine Lagarde, refused to rule out a rate rise this year. Now, that hadn't been the case. Uh, people mostly expected the ECB to start putting up rates at the earliest next year. So it showed that the central bank was more eager and willing to act than it has been. And therefore, interest rates and bond yields across the eurozone would be more likely to rise further than they already have. Yeah, fairly extraordinary, isn't it, Ralph? Because they, um, we've got high inflation in in, mm. in, in the eurozone, yet the the central bank is still actually in easing mode and it, and is sort of pumping money into the market. Yeah, and that's going to create a really, um, I don't know, interesting dynamic in the uh, in the capital markets too. Because what it means is you have issuers of bonds that will want to raise, generally speaking, as much as they can now, while the coupons and spreads to other benchmarks are low. Um, but of course, this does feel very much like the beginning of the end of the cheap money era. Um, yeah. And of course, why would any investor want to buy what an issuer is that desperate to sell? Um, after all, if yields and spreads are going up, then investors will prefer to wait until they they can get better returns later on. Uh, I mean, that's a, that's a big simplification of what goes on in, in the very complex yeah. market. Um, but it does mean, though, is that issuers are having to raise debt from investors who won't always be as keen to buy as they have been. Um, that means issuers, we have heard, are likely to front load their issuance programs, that is to do more funding early. Um, but they will find that 
investors reach the limit of what they are willing and able to buy throughout the year much more frequently. So we're possibly entering a much more sort of stop start bond market. Um, and there will also be a, a bigger focus uh, on macroeconomic data, especially around inflation, while the bond market figures out where in the cycle we're at. Uh, and all of that will influence the sort of bonds that issuers can print. Um, and are there any examples of, of that we can look at of um, this happening already? Yeah, uh, this week, the bank bond market, so uh, banks banks issuing bonds, uh, provided a pretty perfect example um, between Monday and Wednesday. So ahead of the ECB meeting and the Bank of England meeting, seven banks issued almost six billion euros of debt, but all of six years maturity or less. Uh, and that's that's the key point is that investors don't want to lock up their money uh, in long dated bonds, the prices of which are more volatile to a given change in interest rates and short dated bonds. Um, so these what are called defensive trades have become much more popular. The other thing that we're likely to see, of course, is more bonds issued with that pay uh, floating rates of interest rather than fixed coupons. Yes, it's odd. There was a there was actually a, a comment by Shanks Tandon, who's a, a syndicate banker at Credit Suisse, uh, in in the in our story this week, sort of advertising the 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 attractiveness of of floating rate issuance, and almost puzzled at why more issuers don't use it when um, it actually would suit for banks, both the issuer and the investor. Yeah, it's a curious, a curious convention. Um, I guess maybe there is some uh, technical reason I don't know about about why it is. But um, yeah, floating rate notes are generally never quite as popular as uh, as fixed rate deals. Um, I think the other thing actually that's significant about this week's bank issuance um, was that those banks that did issue bonds are paying much bigger premiums to do it. That is to say, they're paying more over their existing debt than uh, they would previously have done. And I think that shows just how keen issuers are becoming to get funding done now while they can at these levels. Yeah. And and the sort of up and down stop start nature of the market was very clear in the corporate sector as well this week, where, um, I mean, generally, it's been pretty, pretty bad market for, for, for a couple of weeks with big new issue premiums required and investors not seeming terribly keen on deals. And then on Wednesday, um, just before the ECB, uh, the IBM, the American uh, computer company, came to the European market, the first sort of proper blue chip uh, US issuer to come to euros this year. Um, it brought eight and 12 year bonds, which are quite, you know, on the long, you know, very much to the long side of what investors want these days. And and they're an absolute blowout. Um, the new issue. How did they premiums, get away with it? Less than five basis points. Well, I think I think people just like the name. Um, and, you know, it, it was exactly what they'd been looking for, uh, a, a change from the endless flow of real estate bonds. But um, the other thing was, it was just it was just a good day. People felt woke up feeling good. And, and um, you know, in, investors were keen to buy. And there was another deal the same day for Turner, which is the Italian electricity grid, completely different deal, much riskier. Uh, it was a hybrid, uh, meaning subordinated bond. Um, and that also went extremely well. Yeah, I think I think that's that's right. I mean, in the in the same article that we were referring to earlier, there was someone from the, uh, I think the sovereign supranational agency bond market who was um, basically saying something similar about the mood that 
there will be green days when the market's yeah. up and everyone can do mm-hmm. what they want and that'll be followed by a red day where absolutely nothing can get done and uh who knows why you know not macroeconomic circumstances don't lurch from one thing to the other uh from day to day uh like that it, it clearly is all going to be about sentiment and it's interesting too isn't it that this all of this is to do with interest rates which which obviously the you know the bond market is all about perfectly pricing debt uh, according to investors expectations about interest rates and inflation but but you we've also got the equity market uh, where initial public offerings are coming um and th- these are completely different sort of capital raisings where um th- th- there's far more risk it's it's about your perspective on a whole company's profitability over over years and that market's also struggling yeah that's right it's um there have been three failed ipos this year uh, all over the last couple of weeks and that's the worst uh total for this point in the year that we could find since 2016. now underlying this has been a rotation out of what are called growth stocks so things like tech companies the sort of companies that boomed during the pandemic whose stock prices absolutely rocketed and there were ipos galore from that sector some good some absolutely disastrous um and so that rotation out of those stocks and into what's called value stocks uh, and those tend to be more traditional businesses that's been underway for a while but the speed of it has really surprised people and caught caught them out um to the point where uh you know uh we transfer the uh the tech company that did an ipo or tried to do an ipo recently failed um but what's interesting and i think this speaks to the speed of the rotation was that one of the one of the best performing sectors of recent times has been banks you'd expect that if interest rate rises were supposed to go up uh, of course and uh you know as we know from from our from our contacts their parts of the business have had this sort of record two years for results and as we covered on the podcast last week you know bonuses are up earnings are up revenues up but this week there was an ipo from that sector and even that got pulled um the ipo of ibacaja spanish bank um, and it's, yeah, again, it's all down to worries over the path of interest rates and the amount of risk aversion that that generates. Yeah. I mean, I think this rotation thing is is very interesting. You know, it, it, it basically investors repositioning out of these uh, growth tech stocks, which seem to be uh, the winners from the pandemic and into everything they'd neglected before, including banks and energy companies, cyclical businesses, which benefit from sort of just getting more cash in during the uh during sort of times of economic growth but are not particularly exciting uh you know or innovative and but the extraordinary thing is this rotation story it's been going on for a year and this year even in 2022 so far it's just got got even more intense so i think the um standard and pause uh, U.S. index of value stocks is up something like twenty six percent just this year, while while the growth sector is down nineteen percent. the 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 growth sector has a bigger impact, so the index as a whole is down. And um, but it's this is this is an extraordinary move, and and I think that is really what's making um, all the investors, which were actually quite a small group that buy European IPOs, sort of just sit on their hands and 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 they're just sort of worried about their portfolios they don't know what what's going to happen and they just would rather not take risk 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I guess if there is a positive from that, then um, even some of those investors will say that they think this is probably a temporary blip um, and that they're just sort of adjusting to the rate of change, I suppose. Um, after all, one of them told us this week that, you know, rates are still historically low. They can go up an awful long way before they are high by any sort of historical standard. And of course, you know, we only have to look to last year where there were record volumes of IPOs done. Um, and it sort of suggests that uh, the appetite or the ability to buy things is there. It will just need market conditions to be ripe. And again, maybe that maybe that speaks to what we were saying about the bond market, that there will just be good weeks and bad weeks um, as as we get used to the end of the uh, easy money era. Well, this is the thing. I mean, in the IPO market, you can't really have good weeks and bad weeks because the deal takes... Uh, I mean, four weeks, but, mm. but it's also more than that because even before that, there's preparation. Um, and, and investors are very, very much caring about how the deal trades after it's priced and finished. And, and you know, they want to see good performance. So if they think the market's going to be off again next week, they're not going to be in a mood to buy. Now, I think in terms of whether the IPO market can recover, the question is really whether this is all about worrying about what the Fed's going to do and interest rates, or is it to, more to do with this rotation? Now, if it's the rotation, then you can imagine that playing out, right? It gets to, gets to an end because it's happened enough and stocks like Netflix um, or, or Tesla have got cheap enough that, that people are satisfied uh, with, the, with the new levels. Um, and then you can get stability again and, and the investors might look at IPOs again. On the other hand, if it's if it's all that they're worried about the Fed, look at look at what everyone's saying in the bond market. This market is going to be jittery and stop start all year. There's not going to be a time in the foreseeable future when the market becomes calm about interest rates. So um, that implies a potentially very difficult IPO market for many months. Well, there is a third option, of course, which would make IPOs easier, which is just increasing the discount on offer. Um, that seems to be the sort of missing well, component, perhaps. That's what th this is what bankers often say, but they I'm pretty skeptical about that because take these three IPOs that have already been pulled this year, um, you know, including WeTransfer and and Ibakaha, these deals are not going to have been coming to market with aggressive pricing you know they they'll probably have been priced to sell in a, in what it was known to be a sort of somewhat tricky market already so and 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 if you just say we'll we'll you know make your deal cheaper you know come people who own companies will just say no I, i'm not going to do it then i'll wait i'll wait a couple of years hmm. well um Speaking of investor decisions, um, you've written a story this week, John, that was uh, really interesting, I thought, about the um, green taxonomy, the, Euro the European Union's taxonomy for sustainable activities. And um, I think, you know, this this is a document that was years in, in gestation and was supposed to be the definitive guide to what makes a good sustainable investment and what doesn't. But um, now investors are kind of being left to make up their own minds in some respect, aren't they? Yeah, I, I mean, this is a this is a massive topic, and um, <coughs> I think the, the the European Union has, for political reasons, purely to please 
certain member states um, changed the taxonomy to introduce uh, make to say that gas and nuclear power under certain circumstances can be considered sustainable. Now, the taxonomy was supposed to be based on scientific advice uh, drawn from a panel of sustainable finance experts. Um, and, you know, by and large, the, the criteria that, that are contained in it so far are from these experts. And, you know, the, they consider them to be robust and, and a good guide to what's sustainable. But the, um, uh, you know, gas and nuclear criteria, they completely reject. And th these have come about purely to please France, which likes nuclear power, um, the Central and Eastern European countries, which want gas to be blessed, and and latterly Germany, which has even uh, come in on 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 the pro gas side, despite the fact that Greens are part of the government now. So um, the, the 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 result is that the document is not considered authoritative. It's it's a, clearly a political fudge. The financial markets can nevertheless have to use it. And so how are they going to react? Well, they're going to follow the taxonomy uh, where it seems useful to them, but apply their own judgment as well and, and sort of deviate from it where, where necessary. And, and I actually have to say, I think the financial markets applying their own judgment is actually good and right. And, you know, it's probably overall a good thing that the taxonomy isn't over-trusted. And I, I suppose the encouraging thing about that is if we think back to when the uh, taxonomy was first mooted as an idea, no one really had a clue uh, what a suitable sustainable activity was, um, probably outside of the uh, multilateral development banks and the government agencies and all the people that sort of generally were funding that kind of activity or government, I suppose. Um, in the intervening years, there's been an absolute explosion in expertise and staffing on these issues in the financial markets and financial firms. So if anything, I suppose the EU has weakened its taxonomy at just the right moment when investors are better equipped to make mm -hmm. up their own mind and follow their own star. That's a, that's a really interesting point. Um, yeah, I mean, it is the expertise was it always existed. You know, it, it's just that the financial markets didn't know about it. No, no. And uh, you rightly say that, you know, most people in financial markets didn't really have a clue. And they were just begging for somebody to tell them what was green in a sort of actually rather babyish way. And, mm -hmm. you know, in fact, a per, on a personal view, I, I've, I've never been particularly enthusiastic about the taxonomy because I thought investors should do their own research and make up their own minds and trying to have a a kind of single harmonized view was was never really going to be possible that that is kind of how it's panned out and but 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 i mean one thing you can say for the taxonomy is it, it provides a framework for the discussion you know for example this, this whole row about gas is is all about the, the emissions from uh power stations and you know so if you have a gas-fired power station even the best most modern one emits more than 300 grams of co2 for every kilowatt hour of energy. And the, the, the taxonomy says 100 grams should be the most for something to be considered sustainable generation of electricity. So it's given people in the market a, a language to talk about this. And um, even if they don't agree, which they were never going to, that is helpful. Yeah.
Yeah. Um, now, I don't have a good segue to move to our next story, so we're just going to go straight to it. Um, and that was a story by our colleague George Collard, who has written about the Russian loan market, that is foreign banks lending to Russian companies. Um, you know, it's, 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 a big, it's a big area of international financing. And of course, um, there's a problem with lending to Russia at the moment, perhaps, because it has over 100,000 of its troops on the border with Ukraine and is involved in a big international dispute and diplomatic standoff about whether or not it's going to invade the country. Um, John, what, uh, what, a, what, a, what, how is that affecting um, what banks are prepared to lend into Russia? Yeah, it's really interesting. It was it was a great story. Um, the, the, there's a minority of banks that that are big in lending to Russia, right? But they include uh, ING, uh, Société Générale, Unicredit, uh, Raiffeisen Bank. Firms like that t- tend to be uh, European rather than US firms. And and the odd thing is that they are they're not freaking out about this crisis. Even though, it, you know, on a sort of, for most people, it seems horrendous that Russia is threatening to invade its neighbour um, for no apparent good reason. Um, and, and that ought to make Russia an international pariah. The, the banks that do business with it have, have, have seen it all before. You know, they've, they've been through crises with Russia before, particularly in 2014 when it invaded Crimea. And um, they're just playing it cool. Yeah, I mean, the, the risk to banks here really is um, not so much Russian credit. It's it's more uh, the imposition of further sanctions on Russia, like those we saw in 2014 and since uh, by the US and the EU. But they, um, yeah, you're right. They've they've been they've they've sort of suggested that they'll well, they'll they'll be cautious, um, but there's no suggestion that they will stop lending to their Russian clients. And this is an interesting thing about the loan market rather than the bond market, isn't it, John? It's, it um, reacts very differently, if it reacts at all, to um, crisis yeah, points. Yeah, that's true. And and in a way, it's a great thing because, you know, if if you think about the financial crisis or crises of, of 10 years ago, um, you know, if if the banks had all reacted in as knee-jerk a fashion as the bond market, the, the economy would have been in ruins. Hmm. But fortunately, they they take a slower and longer-term view of things. Um, and, and in this case, um, you know, the Russian bond, well, sorry, the bond market has been shut to Russian borrowers, the international bond market this year. There'd been no issuance. Um, and, and investors sort of would be too jittery or anxious to 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 buy any bonds but but the loan market isn't and you know some companies in russia are are sort of investigating doing loans more than which otherwise would have issued bonds yeah Uh, well that was a big feature of the pandemic wasn't it as well that eventually uh everyone rushed off to the bond market where terms were fantastic and abandoned the loan market and i guess that means there's also (laughs) a lot of lending capacity at the banks yeah i mean that, that that that's i suppose a sign of the fact that now central banks, the, the easiest tap they've got to pour money into into markets is actually the bond market. Mm. And, you know, they always used to act through the banking sector um, to, to sort of tweak the economy. But now they can just turn on the taps and buy bonds through quantitative easing. And that and that immediately juices up the bond market. Yeah. 
well. Uh, I'd recommend anyone who's interested in that uh, go to uh, the Global Capital website and uh, look that story up. Um, but the segues are back. And so now we're going from Moscow to Mendoza. And as promised, we spoke to Ollie West, our Latin America correspondent, about the situation in Argentina. Hi, Ollie. Thanks for joining us. What's been happening in Argentina over the past week? So there was big news on Friday, the 28th of January, Ralph. Uh, the IMF and the government both said that they'd reached what they termed an understanding of the key policies uh, for a potential um, new funding facility of, of something like $45 billion, which is not the same as uh, what's known as a staff agreement when there's a, a complete agreement on all terms, nor is it an approved program ready to be put into action. But it was enough for bonds to bounce about 10% in cash price terms. And there's a all of a sudden, there's a bit of optimism that um, Argentina and the and the fund can reach, reach an agreement um, over a, a new deal. And this would avoid a, a default or a debt restructuring? Well, yes, in the short term. Um, it's, it's a very important renegotiation um, because Argentina owes the IMF something like $45 billion, uh, which is a legacy of a, of a, of a $57 billion program um, from the previous government. And on March the 22nd, they are due to pay $2.8 billion to the fund. The trouble is Argentina has no dollars. Its international reserves are plummeting by the day. There's just no way it could pay. And uh, even if it did miraculously find a way to make a payment in March, uh, in March, it, it owes some over 16 billion just this year and a larger number next year. Um, and if it defaults on the IMF, which is something that very, very few countries have ever done, it's almost certainly going to default on its international bonds, um, even though it actually owes very little on them uh, this year. So, Ollie, um, why can't Argentina just issue some bonds to, to get the 2.8 billion it needs? Well, um, quite frankly, John, it doesn't have access to capital markets um, because it owes so much money. It's so highly levered. Uh, no one will no one will lend it money. Um, the government had a, a last had access to international markets between 2016 and 2018 under a previous market friendly government. Uh, but uh, um, that ended in disaster. There was a, a currency crisis in 2018, which actually was what triggered this big, um, this big IMF program that <laughs> it's now trying to renegotiate. And uh, two years later, in 2020, Argentina defaulted on those bonds, had to renegotiate them, and um, it's it's kind of a familiar story. Um, I think we've read. I, I think it's 21 IMF programs that Argentina's had in its history. God knows how many defaults. I think it's a higher number than that. So um, to be frank, no one will lend it any money. Um, really, the only reason international investors hold Argentine bonds is because they held them before they defaulted and they were restructured and, um, and they don't want to sell them. Um, so th there's just no way they can source this financing. Well, tell us a bit about that then, because... Um... You know, this isn't Argentina's first rodeo, is it, as far as uh, default and restructuring goes, as, as, as you said. And they've got quite a colourful recent history. 
it has uh, quite a colourful history and it's had quite a colourful history with the debt markets for, for several years. Um, you may remember the headlines of uh, hedge funds trying to seize Argentine ships um, 10 years or so ago. Um, let's, take, let's go back to save, for the purposes of saving time, to the beginning of this century when there was a massive economic crisis in Argentina, um, another one. And Argentina defaulted on all its on all its bonds. Um, it stayed in default from around 2001 to 2015, um, which is what provoked all these legal challenges from from hedge funds. Um, in 2015, uh, a guy called Mauricio Macri won the presidency. Uh, everyone was very excited in the capital markets because he was a business a businessman, expected to be market friendly. Um, and he implemented lots of reforms that investors are very excited about. He, liberate, he liberated the exchange rate. He resolved this dispute with the hedge funds. And uh, it was enough to lure international bond buyers um, for this period of 2016 to 2018, um, as I mentioned uh, earlier. And they, Argentina issued around 50, 50 billion or 60 billion of, of bonds. Uh, it was quite... Um, quite the party, quite the debt carnival. Um, unfortunately, um, although he lured international bond buyers, he did not lure much by the way of foreign direct investment. He did not generate economic growth. Uh, inflation, which has been a problem for decades in Argentina, didn't come down. He barely could make a dent on the fiscal balance. And uh, that's how he got to the um, the crisis that, that began in 2018 and the um, the current government, which was appointed in 2019, basically undid um, all of Macri's policies, has tightly controlled the exchange rate. And uh, to the, the cost of this um, is Argentina's international reserves. I mean, basically, uh, the central bank is buying local currency to fund uh, the government budget. Uh, it's a completely unsustainable state of affairs and Argentina is running out of dollars quickly. So really something has to give. Well, what, I mean, what are the consequences then of this if there is no uh, no successful resolution between Argentina and the IMF? Well, in the in the short term, if there's no no resolution before the 22nd of March, which is when this massive debt payment is due, I mean, no one actually knows. Uh, one analyst I spoke to said, um, the IMF wants to avoid Argentina defaulting because it might show that defaulting to the IMF doesn't really matter. Um, and if that happens, then it doesn't set a very good precedent. Precedent. So, you know, the IMF doesn't want that to happen. Um, at the same time, it, that would be a very, very, very risky uh, ploy if, Ar if Argentina, you know, ultimately doesn't um, agree to the deal and and does default because because no one really knows what's happened what's going to happen that it, it could very well lead to argentina being cut out of all kind of funding sources you know not being able to renew lines with the world bank the inter-american development bank um, you'd think investment to the country which would, would completely would completely disappear um, bond prices which are already trading at 30 cents on the dollars so pricing in a, a restructuring would fall even further um, and the, the reaction probably from the government would be something extreme, completely close the economy, capital controls, 
I mean, unfortunately, as has been the case for the last century, it would be the Argentine people who would who would suffer the most. But as you mentioned, Ollie, uh, you know, um, the IMF and the government have reached an understanding, so that's that's good, isn't it? And um, but I, I, I get the there's been a sort of a political wrinkle in all of this since then. There has, there has. Um, so they reached an understanding, which, as I say, is is not a staff agreement. So there's no, um, you know, it's 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 not a fully um, fully designed and written out program, and it's not a program that's been approved by the IMF board. It's not either a program that's been approved by Argentina's Congress, and uh, quite predictably, perhaps on Monday. Maximo Kirchner, who's the leader of the ruling coalition in the lower house of Congress, in other words, you know, the government's kind of backing in in, in Congress, resigned in protest at the agreement. Um, this is particularly interesting because he's none other than the son of Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner. She is the vice president. She was the president during the, uh, the years of the dispute with the hedge funds. She's notoriously anti-market. She's a, a, a big critic of the IMF, and uh, she's an exceedingly inf- influential figure in in Argentina. Um, to the extent that you know, if if this government doesn't maintain her support, it may it, it may crumble. So, Ollie, what does this deal with the IMF actually consist of, and and what about it uh, does Maximo Kirchner so dislike? Traditionally, IMF deals come with austerity packages, you know, spending cuts, um, very market-friendly, orthodox macroeconomic policy, uh, which is kind of what this government has criticised about the 2018 programme. This one has some conditions. It it reduces, it's supposed to reduce the, um, the fiscal deficit from 4% of GDP in 2021 to two and a half percent in 2022 and i think it goes down to 0.9 by 2024 which isn't as 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 uh, a quicker fiscal adjustment as bond markets would like to see of course but it, it's considered something reasonable um there's also a reduction in what i was talking about this central fi- bank financing as in the central bank financing the government that's supposed to be reduced um, there's a pledge to increase international reserves by $5 billion. Um, that likely would come from the additional funding from, from the IMF. Um, in general, though, it, it, it's not particularly demanding of the Argentine government. Uh, you know, these packages often come with big reform ambitions. There's none of that. This is, you know, keep ticking over. Let's go in the right direction. Let's make something that's quite feasible um, and that you can achieve without, you know, annoying your population too much. Um, but of course, any kind of fiscal austerity that's um, seen to be an aid of the IMF is going to annoy the Kitcheners, who are the radical wing, really, of the, of the ruling Peronist party. And, uh, you know, they want to please their support base. Um, so succumbing to the um, you know, the, the neoliberal forces uh, of, of the IMF is not something that is that they're prone to do. Um, so the, the question really is, are they just posturing? Is this some kind of power play on behalf of, uh, uh, from Maximo Kirchner on behalf of his mother? Um, and eventually, will they, you know, come to their senses and agree to a deal? That's one way of thinking. But some people in Buenos Aires 
uh, have lived through too many crises to 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 credit the um, the government with with too much common sense. And you know there is still a chance that they, in spite of what logic would say, you know, stick to their guns, refuse to approve the package, um, and uh, potentially derail the entire agreement. Um, I suppose if the IMF has, you know, put together a package like this that is doesn't make many of its usual demands or its more onerous demands, then I guess that kind of shows there's a bit of a difference in the balance of power here and that uh, the IMF sort of needs the deal to happen. So is there a sense for whether um, Argentina will push for further concessions or, like you say, is it just sort of posturing but they'll take a good deal when they see it? Or, well, they will take a good deal that they have seen. Well, the final deal, of course, is not is not set in stone. Um, one would think that it's in the IMF's interests to make sure the deal happens, which is why these conditions are already quite lenient. It's, it's still to be seen just how lenient they can become um, if the government is struggling to to get these get the dealers in its sort of skeleton form um, through. But I think the, the the bigger point here really is that this is just kicking the can down the road. Um, to use a, a phrase that bond market analysts love to use, um, Argentina is is an extremely overlevered country with all sorts of macroeconomic imbalances, and it requires an adjustment. And this adjustment is going to be painful. Um, and of of course, the current government doesn't seem willing to make a even a minimal adjustment, let alone a let alone a a, a real major structural adjustment. So even in the best case scenario, let's say that, um, you know, the government and Congress take the pragmatic approach, they approve the deal as it is, Argentina is able to meet these targets, which is another thing that, you know, no one knows, they don't have a great track record. And then, you know, the final sort of the cherry on top for the, for the bond markets would be if in December 2023, um, some kind of market friendly government takes over. Even if all that happens and the stars align, in 2024, the Argentina's um, bond market payments start to increase sharply. Um, these are the bonds that they renegotiated in 2020. And um, Moody said this week that it highly doubts that in 2024, Argentina will be in a position to, to, um, to meet those payments. So I think even in a best case scenario, um, it's it's a rocky road ahead, um, and we're probably looking at yet another bond market bond um, restructuring in twenty four. Of course, whether that can be a force for good in Argentina and be accompanied with uh, an economic program that fixes these imbalances, um, and whether it's done in a you know in a manner that perhaps keeps bond markets on side and enables the country to not too not too long after that regain market access it, it remains to be seen i mean uh, argentina's history is so tumultuous in in financial markets that you really don't want to be uh, betting on that i don't think so i mean not ask you to necessarily bet but do you think there'll be a deal or not i think if <laughs> i think if i was a betting man um uh you probably would that there would be a deal that's what the market is pointing to 
um, bondholders I spoke to are not particularly confident that there is a bet to be had, if you see what I mean, as in, even if there is a deal, do the bonds rally sharply and can they make some nice profit? Uh, it's probably doubtful because of all these doubts that are going to remain. Um, but at the moment, you would hope and expect that um, a deal will happen. The IMF, you know, it's got itself in a bit of a pickle here because of the amount of money it's it's lent Argentina. And in, in December, it published a, a, a self-appraisal of the 2018 deal and highlighted a lot of things that it that it did wrong. Um, so it doesn't really want to be seen as the as the organization that throws Argentina back into economic crisis. Mm. Um, so, you know, logic would suggest there is a deal. Logic would suggest that uh, the government would want to deal, you know, no government two years before an election wants to be de um, dealing with, you know, a, a devastating economic crisis. Um, they're already um, not in a particularly strong position. They had a pretty bad showing at last year's midterms. So common sense would say there will be a deal. That's what the market is betting on. Um, but this is Argentina. I'm not sure common sense is what should guide us. They haven't got long to sort the deal out either, have they? They don't. March 22nd, uh, Bank of America suggested that if a staff level agreement is in place um, and, you know, it's looking serious uh, and it's, it's kind of looming, that there's a potential for some kind of bridge loan that could cover the, the, the March payment. But, you know, that's not going to be a long term thing. So time is of the essence here. Um, there's probably, you know, this is we've got what uh, just under two months. That's plenty of time in Argentina for ups and downs and political posturings and bond prices to to jump and then fall again. Um, you know, you remember the 2020 restructuring. It was really sort of eight months of bickering and back and forth. And then within a week, um, the kind of, you know, two years of negotiations played out in record time. So it's always last minute. Um, I would expect it to be done the day before. But um, yeah, it's definitely one to watch. So Wally, you've talked about how Argentina has this massive debt burden that it's trying to uh, struggle along under and, and, and can never quite seem to get free of. So there's this, this problem of legacy debt. But, but does the country have some you know, fundamental economic weaknesses that mean that it, it can just never get free of a crisis? Well, Argentina was in the 1920s, the eighth most prosperous economy in the world. It has plentiful natural resources, human capital. Um, in terms of, you know, if you look at the development index, it's, it's far from the poorest country in, in Latin America, but it's been badly managed um, in terms of economic policy for, for almost a century. Um, and the problem essentially at the moment is Argentina spends uh, more money than it earns and it's dollar earnings are, are, no, um, are nowhere near what they need to be to service its dollar obligations. Um, and when you couple that with a track record that's as poor as Argentina's, um, which gives it very limited um, credibility with international markets, it means that, you know, the private sector is very reluctant to invest in Argentina. Um, it, it, it's kind of, it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy that there will be another crisis. I mean, 
Um, I was talking to one investor who in his research talks to a lot of agricultural companies. Argentina is a big producer of soy. It's a big producer of beef. And he says, you know, he said they spend most of their days doing FX modeling, trying to work out how to arbitrage the FX rate in a way that doesn't punish them because there are controls, there are capital controls. They can only access dollars at certain times at certain rates. So really it's just, it's a completely dysfunctional way of running of running an economy. Um, and as I said, it becomes a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy when, when you have continual economic crises because people don't want to live there. People don't want to keep their money there. The Argentine peso has had such a terrible ride that Argentines don't save in pesos. So it's, it's really a, a difficult, um, it's a difficult, it's a, it's a longstanding problem. And the, the longer the problem goes on, the harder it becomes to, to, to solve because really Argentina should be a, a relatively, um, a relatively prosperous country as it was a hundred years ago. One thing that um, has troubled me is, uh, you know, obviously we all fondly remember the, um, the default saga uh, before Argentina regained its uh, market access a couple of years ago, but thereafter the sovereign brought huge amounts of, as you've said already, it's brought huge amounts of bonds to market. And it wasn't just the sovereign, was it? Every every region, city, and a number of uh, corporate borrowers also piled into the bond market. Yeah. I mean, wasn't this all like a bit predictable? Well, Argentina was, was flavor of the month uh, for, for about two years in bond markets. Here was this country with this incredible unlocked potential Bear in mind that debt capital markets uh, desks in New York are populated by lots of Argentines who left the country 20 years ago, perhaps in, in search of a, a better future because Buenos Aires is a difficult, difficult, it was a difficult place then. Um, the, the debt management office of Argentina in, in 2016 to 18 was, was run by investment bankers who did a great job of selling bonds. Everyone wanted to believe that this time it was different. And, and really it was, an, it was an incredible marketing effort. And maybe if the, the government had been a, a little bit more careful on, on the fiscal side, on the um, monetary policy side, maybe it could have been different, but unfortunately um, it, it wasn't. And I, you know, Bond markets have short memories, and, and with Argentina, I think that's it's probably shown more than anywhere else. Um, we'll see in in twenty twenty four if there's a market friendly government, and if it does a market friendly restructuring, and uh, will they suddenly be able to turn to bond markets in twenty twenty five, and will be will we be reliving the story again? Um, it, it's hard to say. I I think. That at least the IMF has, has will have learnt its lesson because this is quite a an unprecedented situation it finds itself in. Um, whether bond markets have, we'll see. I, I'd, I'd say that at thirty cents on the dollar, uh, there's little evidence that um, bond investors are, uh, you know, forgetting their pain of the last two years. Well, as Argentina approaches a pivotal moment in its uh, 
checkered capital markets history. So too, the rest of the world appears to be reaching something of an inflection point um, in, its, in its borrowing plans and how it approaches capital markets with uh, changes in central bank policy to come. Um, I'd like to thank John and Ollie for joining me to record this week's podcast and to Gerald Hayes, our editor, for stitching it all together. Please uh, remember to subscribe to the podcast if you like what you hear. Uh, you can just search for us on any podcast provider and you'll find you'll find us. It's free. There's a new episode out every Friday. And of course, do get in touch. Just email us at podcast at globalcapital.com if you have anything to say. In the meantime, we'll be back with more from the capital markets next week. So thank you very much for listening and goodbye. Oh, 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 oh,